By now we've discovered the theme of this letter from James is spiritual maturity. If the letter were published today as a standalone book, we could easily entitle it uh, something like Growing Up in God. Now while many New Testament authors, certainly under the inspiration of the Spirit's movement, emphasize what we believe, James emphasizes how we behave. For James, uh, the question is not, do you believe correctly, but are you behaving correctly? And nowhere is behavior seen more clearly than in our speech. And so if you've been with us the last few sessions, James has dealt with our tongue, the character of our words, and now he changes the theme. And we all say, praise God that he's finally leaving the tongue alone. It will still involve the tongue, certainly, but he's now going to focus on not the character of our speech, but the character of our wisdom, that is, wisdom that impacts our behavior. And I will tell you, he really isn't letting up, he's just sort of changing the dial a little bit as he challenges us to grow up in God. And he he begins this new paragraph with a pop quiz. Are you ready for a pop quiz? You're saying, wait, I came to church, not school, and and I'm auditing anyway. No, you can't audit, you remember? You got to take the quizzes and the exams and and, and the tests. So here is, here's the pop quiz question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Verse 13 of chapter 3 in James. Who among you is wise and understanding? And you can just imagine the buzzing in the assemblies that received this letter or copies of it, as people would no doubt begin to look around, I wonder, oh, let's see, that guy over there, that lady over there, that girl, yeah, that, that's, that's them, that they are. And they could raise their hand and they could say, yes, I'm here. I'll raise my hand, teacher. And James could expect everyone to raise their hand. And in fact, he's assuming that we would say at least, well, uh, I, I know I could be wiser, but I think I've got a little bit of a grip on on the Christian experience. I I don't want to be presumptuous. I'm not as wise as I wish I were, but I think I could respond. Uh, I'm here. James knows that that would be the intention of our heart. We might not do it publicly, but he knows that no one among us is going to raise our hand and say, no, not me. I'm an idiot. I'm going to sit in the back. You work with the wise people up front. That's not a reference to where you're sitting, by the way. All three hours have been troubled by that. No, that's not what he expects. He's expecting every one of us to say in our heart, whether we raise our hand or not, I may not be as wise as some of the other Christians I see around me, but but I know I'm wiser than some of the people I see around me. So I'm in church anyway, aren't I? Doesn't that give me some tokens of wisdom? Count me in. Count me, yeah, you know what, you're right. I, I'm not where I should be, but I know I'm, I've got some wisdom, and so I'm going to raise my hand too, and, and, and we'll all answer that question. Who among you is wise and understanding? And that would, be, that would be all of us. And James knows in our heart of hearts we would be saying something like that. And once we've raised our hands, we discover he set us up. He set us all up. He's assuming that quietly, secretly, we could look around and find someone not as wise as we, by our own judgment. Maybe not, a, not as good a grip we might think on life as we have. And, and he walks us right into this cul-de-sac. There's no way out. 
There's no way past what he's about to do because he effectively says, okay, you think you're one of the wise and he would assume that all would say yes. Well, let me describe a wise person to you in this paragraph and then let's see how you measure up. And now we're all thinking, why did I raise my hand? Can I change my answer? No, he's already seen it. Too late. Besides, if you want to grow up in in God, if you want to learn how to work your way through the maze of life, we do need to want to be wise, and and we we do have a measure of wisdom. But what does it really look like in real life? Well, that's verses 13 to the end of the chapter. In fact, through chapter 4, we're going to continue with what we'll call words, a word to the wise. And before we start the engines and take off, I think we need to understand what James means when he uses the words wise and understanding. And the more I study this, the more I realize we wouldn't get into the paragraph. We're just going to introduce the whole subject. Wise and understanding. By the way, it's the first time those two words ever appear side by side in the New Testament. What do they mean? Well, let's start with wise. You might circle that word. You'll find the word wise or wisdom dotting its way throughout the next several verses. What does that mean? What does James mean? Well, if you've been with us, in fact, if you've been with the Lord for any period of time, you've probably read through the book of James and you know it. It it, it showed itself. It was used by James in chapter 1, verse 5, where James wrote, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God. He won't rebuke you. He'll give to you liberally. The word he uses is now used again by James here in chapter 3. In chapter 1, he didn't describe it. He just said, you need it. You can ask God for it. And he'll give it to you. Now, in in chapter 3, he will describe it. The word wisdom is safas. We think of sophia meaning wise, it's used as a popular name. It was used by the Greeks in the time of of James and our Lord as a general word for theory, a body of knowledge, or even philosophy. You can hear the Greek word sophos in philosophy, supposedly the love of wisdom. The Jews in the Old Testament and certainly in the New Testament, deepened, enriched the meaning of this word as the Spirit guided them to refer not to just some theory, but the application of theory to life, the application of knowledge to life, literally bringing knowledge outward in demonstration. You see, knowledge alone is not the Bible's concept of wisdom. Facts are not sufficient. James is is not uh, comparing or equating wisdom with your ACT scores. He he isn't tying wisdom to your GPA in in high school or college. And I I thank God for that. There's hope. He's not tying wisdom with the diploma you've got hanging on the wall. See, the truth is, in the perspective of Scripture... There are plenty of really smart fools living today. Brilliant minds. High IQs. But they're far from God and Scripture never 
separates the two. In fact, Solomon will write as a younger monarch becomes he, before he becomes a, an older foolish man bowing at the shrines of his wives. He'll say that a relationship with God of fear and trust, awe, worship, is the threshold. It's the beginning to wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. You can't even begin until you have a relationship with God, we know through Jesus Christ. Now, now, don't misunderstand. You can be very smart without God. You can get an A plus on your chemistry exam, an experience I never had. You can have a, a GPA now of 4.0, and it even goes higher. Now, you can do all the extra stuff and get 4.2 and 4.3. Those are heights I never saw. I don't know about you. You can be really smart without God. But we're not talking about your grade point average. We're talking about wisdom. You know, a wise person doesn't have to get past the eighth grade, which many of your grandparents or great grandparents, that's where they stopped before they went back to the farm full time. But what godly lives many of them lived, and what wise. Men and women, many of them were. You just read Romans chapter 1 where unbelievers reject the truth of God. They, they reject the creative handiwork of God as his. They reject the revelation of the gospel. And then what do they do? Romans 1 tells us they turn around and they announce, they proclaim, they reward themselves as wise. Same word. Wise. Paul comes along in chapter 1, verse 22, and he says, No, they have become fools instead. The word for fool in Romans 1, 22 is the Greek word morino, from which we get our word moron. Not a very flattering term. That's exactly the contrast, though, that James is going to develop in this paragraph. He's going to, to contrast the wisdom of the world, which is moronic. Why? Because it's only temporary. Doesn't last. It's a dead end. It's not fulfilling. It's self-promoting and self-proclaiming. And, and we know that we don't deserve that. We know who we are. He'll contrast that with the wisdom that comes down from heaven, which is liberating. It's true. You see, in biblical terminology, Facts, knowledge may allow you to take things apart. Wisdom enables you to put things together. So a wise person, in the mind of James, here in chapter 3, is someone who is taking the knowledge of God's truth and applying it to life. James also uses, you'll notice, the word understanding. Perhaps you could circle that one. An interesting word. In fact, it's the only time this word appears in the New Testament. The word understanding, wise and understanding, I, I thought at first as I began to study this would be somewhat redundant. It really isn't. There are nuances that are unique with this, this, these words, this one uh, too. The word understanding was used in James' generation for someone who was becoming a specialist in some field, a skilled practitioner. So it isn't just that you're wise, you're becoming skillful in practicing it. When we think of a skilled specialist or practitioner, we often think of the medical community. 
And it's wonderful to be in a town with, with so much available. I don't, it doesn't matter what part of you hurts or doesn't work or needs help. There is a specialist for that, right? And we're willing to, to hand it over, the dough that is, to the specialist to, 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 to fix that, that problem. That's sort of the idea here. Someone who is skilled, they've taken all the knowledge, and now they focus it down to one area. James says you take all of what you know about God's truth and then something happens in your life and you take all of that and you funnel it down almost like a laser beam to deal with that particular situation. I I thought perhaps I could illustrate the meaning of this word the more I thought about it with driving. I don't know about you, but I remember the day I got my, my permit, learner's permit back then. They just discovered the wheel when I got it, and it was wonderful. I don't know about you, but you had to take a driver's ed. Do you remember that? Driver's ed. Your instructor if, was more than likely a man so desperately in need of money, he risked his life with 15-year-olds, and he let them drive. You've seen the cars around town, haven't you? Mid-sized, small cars. You got a little sign on the seal on, on the roof of the car, and you just know to pull over and let them go by. And there goes that fifteen-year-old, just clench, just intent. There's a terrorized man sitting next to him. Some kids in the back hanging on for dear life. They don't pay these guys enough. I remember arriving from my first driver's ed class and immediately being thrilled to death because, you know. Slipping into a car, you don't really know how to drive all that well, is, is pretty intimidating. And we had a choice. We could choose either a small, I think it was a little Chevy or Oldsmobile car, and, and a Volkswagen Bug, which is exactly what my family owned. Same thing, just a different color. Ours was baby blue. We used to call them doodle bugs. That was a bug, and, and it was four on the floor. I knew how to work the stick shift. I had practiced for hours in the driveway at my home, and I could, I could go back and, and forth. I'd learned to, to, to measure and balance the, the gas pedal going down and the clutch coming out and reverse. And then I, I, my parents let me go out in front of the, the yard in our little neighborhood, and I could, I could go from one end of the yard and, and, and make it into fourth gear. I was good at it. I knew how to do it. And so I, I, I got to choose, and I chose that doodle bug. I thought, this is great. And I, in fact, I was the first one to drive. He put me in the driver's seat, instructor sitting next to me, and a couple of kids in the back. We were going to take turns. And he said, okay, son, you can start the engine. I popped in the clutch, turned the engine on, shifted it in first, put down the gas, let off the clutch, took off, smooth as glass, put it in second gear, and about that time... We came to a screeching halt. I, I didn't know what happened. Just, just came to a screeching halt, and I looked over, and he had a set of brakes on his side. <laughs> My wife's been wanting one of those for years. I won't give it to her. And he said, son, we are not here to race. We are here to learn. So, okay. And I went real slowly, and, 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 but I finally got my permit. Man, isn't that a great moment? Do you remember that? You're not too old to remember that, are you? 
Some of you are old enough to know you drove without any permit, right? You get a pickup truck on the farm. Who cared? <laughs> well, you know, you get in the city and you have to go through all of that. And our kids, the same thing. And we let them practice on the family pickup. They had to drive only the pickup truck. And they left their mark, each of them individually, except the last one. I will say that she never, she never got into an accident. The others hit trees, the garage wall, the other cars, and, and all of that. But what a, what a great feeling. You can now... Drive, and there's nothing better than that. All the knowledge, you've learned it, you've studied it, you've, you've taken the test, and now it's funneled down, and you got the wheel in your hand. And that's just great. It's funny, I remember reading about one 15 year old in New York. He's walking down the sidewalk, and uh, he was accosted by a couple of guys who were going to steal his wallet, and they demanded his wallet, and he refused. And they actually pulled a gun out on him, and he still refused. And they jumped on him and began to hit him, and he was clinging on to his wallet for all the dear life. And finally some friends came along and, and helped him, and they ran away. And they said, why in the world didn't you just give them your wallet? He said, my driver's permit's in there. I'd rather die than not be able to drive. My kind of guy. You know, I've read that the vast majority of accidents continue to occur in the first year of someone driving a car. Now, maybe what we need to do is skip the first year or just don't drive because the stakes are too high and accidents or the ratios are, are, are really not in your favor. Oh, no, no. The truth is you need time behind the wheel so that you can become skilled. You may not know all there is to know about the, the engineering of that car. You may not remember all the laws you were supposed to memorize in that book. But you do know about the dotted line, and you do know about the gas pedal, and you got a little bit of knowledge, but you're going to learn it when you begin to drive it. You know, when you became a Christian, you got a learner's permit. And you can't skip over that first year. You've got to learn. And you soon discover there are a lot of complications in the Christian life. In fact, I thought when I got saved, I thought, I thought the preacher said all my problems would be solved. I got more problems than I ever knew I could have. You see, it's just like driving. The scenery changes. It's never the same. The road doesn't stay straight and flat. It turns it twists. And there are other people out there too. They're driving, moving objects. And you've got to take what you know and apply it at any given turn, at any given situation. Life does not stay in, in park. You got to learn to contend with all those people. And then if you live out near where I do in 401, you got animals. I'm not talking about Carolina fans. I mean real animals running across the street. Driving is dangerous. And so is Christianity. That's why many Christians just want to stay in the garage. Keep it in park. James is telling us to take our faith out on the open road. And yes, there may be accidents along the way. But stay at it. You are developing skill. That is the idea of the word understanding. It is both the application of knowledge, wisdom. 
and the development of skill as a practitioner of that application that develops a wise person. And, and, and the next question that would come to our minds is, well, how do I know if I'm getting along? How do I know if I'm progressing? Well, James will spend the majority of this paragraph answering that question. Let's just look at one more phrase. Look back at verse 13. James answers that question. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Well, here's how he's going to show it. Here's how you show it. Two ways. We'll call these two visible mannerisms of a wise person. The first one is, he says, good behavior. Good behavior. Doesn't need a whole lot of explanation, but we have some time left. We talk about somebody getting out of jail early because of their good what? Behavior. But this is really more than a reference to keeping your nose clean. He's, he's literally using a word that means to return. Fascinating to me what this implies about the Christian walk. It means to turn back time and time again. Because the truth is we, we cross over the line when we drive. We may go too fast or too slow. We may, we may go the wrong direction. We may get lost in where we need to be. And, and this word, good behavior, is actually a reference to someone who is returning time and time again to the truth of God's Word. So goodness or good behavior is someone who, can, who, who walks, who comes back to walk next to the truth. And when we come back time and time again to walk next to the truth, we will demonstrate good behavior. That's why th- this, this is not an option. This is, this is the definition of what is truth. This is the standard. So this becomes, in effect... The guideline. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. I see people walking their dogs in, in our neighborhood. And uh, I, I've seen people with a leash that, that's pretty clever. I, I don't, I don't, I've never used one. Back in you know, my day, we used a rope or something. Actually, you didn't have to have a leash back in that day, but now you do. But there's a little button, I guess, you push. And that line, that leash goes out longer. And so the dog can run 10, 15 feet ahead, and, and then you release it, and it begins to recoil, rewind, and it pulls gently that dog back to walk beside the master. That's the idea of returning. You go out to the end, that's as far as I can go, and really the best thing for me is to come back and walk next to the master. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen parents at the mall. Have you seen them? Got Johnny in a little harness and a leash, and he's straining to get past that leash. In the meaning of this word, the one who is straining, like little little Johnny, who strains against the leash designed by God will be unwise. The one who reaches the end and instead of straining goes, oh, that's it, I'm going to actually go back and walk next to the master. That is a person who will demonstrate good Behavior because he's walking in the truth. Now, now, you'll notice in the text that James doesn't go on to, to give us a list. In other words, you don't see, let him show by his good behavior his deeds. And here's a, here are 20. Here are the top 20. These are the ones that really matter. No. 
He doesn't say that because he knows that everyone intuitively understands what is good and what isn't. Now, we might suppress the truth. We might argue with it, but we know it. And so we will talk about, you know that guy? He's a good man. You don't have to define it. You just know that whoever you're talking to is going to understand it's a good man. She's a good girl. He's a good employee. That's good food. Now that might be debatable. We might argue about what's good and what isn't. Those are good deeds. You say to your child before he leaves to get on that school bus, or you drop him off, you, you say, now, now, now look, Johnny, I, I want you to be good. And you don't write out ten things and pin it to his pocket. I don't think. But you know, he knows that means any number of things. Don't yell at the kids. Don't push anybody down at the playground. uh, Share your snacks. Don't talk back to the teacher. And on and on and on. Everybody knows what good behavior is. Now the world will suppress the truth of God's standard. The leash, so to speak. It's good. It's profitable for reproof. And they'll call badness goodness. They'll call evil right. But they still know. They still know. No matter what culture or what country. I pulled this article off one online news agency, which I found interesting. It it, it leaked the trouble Iran is having with keeping its single people, population from engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage, which is a violation of Muslim law. So they know it's against their religion. They got to deal with it. And so what they decided to do, in fact, the uh, Iranian interior minister was on state-run television talking about this. And um, uh, I I pulled off uh, the manuscript. What they want to do is legalize a Shiite Muslim a tradition called temporary marriage. Temporary marriage, let me just read it. Temporary marriage is where a man and a woman can sign a contract that allows them to be legally married for any length of time, even if it's only for an hour. The contract is signed, and then it is followed up by the man giving his bride some money. We all know what that is. That's not marriage. That's not temporary marriage. That's prostitution. But we're going to come up with a way because something in us tells us that's wrong. So we'll come up with a loophole. And now, by the way, before we thumb our nose at Iran, at least they work with a contract. I couldn't help but think of the Apostle Paul who wrote in Romans 2. He said... That the unbelieving world has the law of God written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing them or defending them. So, if you want to be perceived as wise, you don't have to hand somebody, Here's, here, here are 20 good things, now measure me against those. No, it's just life. You go out and you demonstrate Good living. You can come up with all kinds of adjectives, superlatives, 
Integrity, honesty, um, purity, just old-fashioned biblical goodness. You'd think that James, he's going to define wisdom. He's going to tell us what a wise person is. It's going to be erudite. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be unique. And he says, just be good. That's it. Just be good and you know what good is. That's what James said. That's the first mannerism. The second is added in verse 13. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. A wise person, second of all, is marked, you could literally translate this, by wisdom producing gentleness. Wisdom producing, the word is often translated meekness or humility. In fact, James has already used this same word back in chapter 1 and verse 21 where he exhorts the believer to receive the implanted word of God with humility, prous, the same word. Jesus Christ used that word in Matthew 5 where he said, Blessed are the meek, prous, same word, for they shall inherit the earth. And, And this has to reshape that body of knowledge that we have and and reconstruct it so that we apply it correctly because it's upside down, but right side up. The Greek world thought of meekness as weakness. If you're meek, you're going to be the doormat of the human race. The meek do not inherit the earth. They get ground down into the earth. I don't want to be meek. No, meekness is not weakness. In fact, the word is used for power under control. Power under control. It was used in the days of Plato for a brilliant teacher who could be disrespected by argumentative students without losing his temper and throwing them out of the class. He was a meek professor. He had the power, but it was under control. It was used by the Greeks to refer to a gentle fire that you might have in your fireplace. It's a powerful thing, but it's under control. The Greeks also used it for a gentle breeze, a meek wind. Just the right amount. If it isn't, it could be a hurricane or a tornado. The word was also used of meek or gentle medicine. It's a prescription with the right ingredients and it's the right dose. The right dose can bring healing or comfort. The wrong dose is dangerous. So James is talking about strength and power of a substance that is under control. And in this context, it would be the personality and character of the one who says, I want to grow more skillful in wisdom. This is Jesus Christ. He was reviled and he reviled not back, right? Not again. When suffering, he offered no threats in return, 1 Peter 2, 23. If you want to consider power under control, consider Jesus Christ. One word and Golgotha is flattened. One 
one sweep of his hand and that mocking crowd bends and worships. Instead, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2, verse Verse 8, that's power under control. But isn't it easy for us to read that or hear that and say, isn't that great? I love that about the Lord Jesus. He's just always under control. Isn't it great that God could act that way and miss the first part of that paragraph, which says, have this same attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, who was meek. So James is under the impression that good behavior and Gentle deeds are not reserved for God alone. James is asking, are you a wise person? Did you raise your hand in your heart? You know, when I threw that out, did you think in your mind, well, you know what, I'm not as wise as I'd like to be, but I think I am sort of, kind of, maybe a little bit. What about your good behavior? Are you demonstrating power under control? Has anybody seen that kind of control in your life? You, you'll have an, you know, an opportunity to evidence power under control when you, when you go try to leave the parking lot in a few minutes. <laughs> have you ever seen that in someone else's life? You'll have an opportunity to do that today as well. I saw an unforgettable display of this when I was around 18 years of age. My dad and I were downtown Norfolk and we were handing out invitations to sailors who were off duty for the weekend. Back in those days, the ministry of missions to the military was very different. Uh, it was a downtown kind of ministry because all of the military came downtown when they were off duty. Now it's different. But those ships in Norfolk would empty. And it would empty into, into Norfolk. And Norfolk was sort of this sinner's paradise. A sailor's paradise. One bar after another down these streets, downtown Norfolk. One brothel after another. One porn shop after another. Dotted every so often by one of those theaters, and the marquee would read Triple X back in those days. We were out there on one of the streets handing out invitations for the Bible study that was going to happen at the center, which is also downtown, right in the middle of it all. And a civilian man walked up. I can still see it, I can still feel it. It's just if I was there today. And when he received from my father an invitation, he threw it on the ground and he slapped my father across the face. I remember looking at my dad and he kind of gathered himself and then he looked back at the man with his cheek flamed red. And he said, do you feel better now? I was standing there thinking, we can take this guy. You go high, I'll go low. We got him in the name of Christ. Boom. This is power under control. That's the word James uses here. Am I wise? Are you wise? Here's a word to the wise. For those who are wanting to grow in wisdom and grow more skillful in the application of truth to life, there are going to be two visible mannerisms, and this is just the beginning of the paragraph. These two, good behavior, gentle or meek character. Now let me wrap it up with two principles and then we'll we'll stop here. Number one, wisdom from what we know already 
is not automatically given to those who can identify it. It's given to those who are willing to practice it. The world can identify it when they see it. They can identify good behavior when they see it. But ask that guy that works down the hallway from you, do you want to do that? Are you kidding? The weekend's coming. That would mess up my life. I like the fact that you're good. Not me. They may be intrigued. They may ask you, you know, what what do you do? Are you like a religious fanatic or something? You went to church? Like what, once or twice a year? I do that too. No, you mean like every Sunday? See, wisdom, ladies and gentlemen, is not for the, for the curious. It's for the serious. Wisdom is for those, the writer of Hebrews said, who by means of practice have learned to discern between good and evil. Hebrews 5, 14. Secondly, wisdom is not automatically given to those who'd like to have it. It's given to those who cannot live without it. Like a 15-year-old who would rather die than not be able to drive. Solomon put it this way, if you cry for discernment, if you, if you cry out for understanding, you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures... Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And he stores up sound wisdom for the upright, those who keep coming back to walk next to him. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And I love this, how he ends it up. And you will walk in the way of good men. A great summary of James chapter 3, verse 13. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And perhaps for some here it is like that leash where it has extended all the way it will. Maybe someone here who belongs to you by faith in Christ alone is still straining at the other end. In danger. May they return to walk by the side of truth that they already know. Maybe, Father, for many this is an encouragement that even though we're, we're not wise, as wise as perhaps we'd like to be, we're to stay behind the wheel. And you, our instructor, you are not terrified. You already know the twists and turns. You even know places where there will be accidents. Your grace is sufficient. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So cause us today to thank you, all of us, We've come to you by faith to thank you for your grace, to thank you for the gifts of wisdom for those who can't live without wisdom and understanding. May we become, because of our worship, even more serious. 
so that tomorrow when we show up at work, we'll begin to develop, by your grace, a reputation where people will say, that man is a good employee. He, he works hard. She's honest. You can trust her. Good behavior. And then a humility that accompanies it. Because typically, Father, when we do something good, we like people to know about it. So we entrust our lives to you today. Thanking you for the privilege of bringing us together, being in our midst, as well as in this unique way as an assembly of believers. Thank you. We thank you for many friends who are visiting. And we pray that we'll continue to follow after you to return time and time again back to the standard that you have, not just as individuals, but as a church fellowship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.